From the Media Factory in the south end of Burlington, Vermont, this is 99.3 FM, WBTV LP Burlington. Streaming online at 993wbtv.org. Hey folks, my name is Infinite, and for almost a decade, I've had the privilege of working as a community organizer on issues related to education equity. Many years ago, one of my favorite community organizers of all time, Bob Moses, warned that in our country, we've been running a sharecropper education, meaning that the education we usually wind up receiving in our public schools is largely predetermined and based on the family we're born into. And if we carry that forward into the information age, then we'll have serfs in our towns and cities, just like we had serfs in the Delta, Mississippi during the industrial era. This is the huge challenge facing our country, he said. This prophecy by Bob Moses is now upon us. Welcome to Back to Freedom School, a deeper dive into education equity in the state of Vermont where we'll be discussing issues like school funding, literacy, labor, community schools, and the various ways that white supremacy culture shows up as one of the root problems in our public education system. Thank you for listening. Netdahi, is yeah. that how you say it? Netdahi is how, Netdahi. how Yep, is how I'm used to saying it. I was given a culturally stolen name that we don't speak the language of, and it's one of three spellings. So I've got no authority in the saying of my name, but that's how we, uh, that's how I've understood it in my life. And so my name is Infinite, <laughs> right? Um, and my name has some, some background to it. You know, that was a name that I, I picked up when I was incarcerated and I feel like it was, you know, it was bestowed on me. It wasn't like something that, you know, a name that I thought was going to be a cool name to DJ with, right? Um, but it worked out for that as well, right? But let's start there. Let's let's um talk a little bit about you know who you are, where you're from, how you got here, what you do, and and beginning with that name, I'm I'm curious. It's really interesting. I was born in Somerville, Mass, like in an apartment building after 32 hour labor struggle that my mom had in the middle of a party right basically it was like a day and a half long party waiting for me to come into the world and and I was born into like a a mix of like anti-racist activists and revolutionaries and freedom fighters in that room were like panthers and white uh, anti-imperialist revolutionaries really kind of high-fiving about bringing another set of folks into the world right so it's sort of a the greatest of all the privileges that I have in life my own personal sort of feeling is that that's the greatest thing that has ever happened to me is to get to have just been plopped into the world on the back of that. My biological father didn't want to name me a stolen name. And, and he had a family named Warren picked out for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, my mom wasn't having it. I don't have his last name. And we weren't, you know, there was none of that. That wasn't going down that way. And so they did agree, but that basically they, um, they named me Natahe and they named my sister also an indigenous American name. We'll get to this again too, but I have two brothers who are the biologically the product of my mom and my dad who raised me and they have got African ancestry and they both have African names, one Swahili and one Zulu name. But the point in all of the names was to have androgynous names all that um, also, especially like for my sister and I, who have white skin privilege, they wanted to remind us whose land we were on, which is a little funny in my instance that I also was given a name from folks 3000 miles away <laughs> rather than locally indigenous. But anyway, remember whose land we are on 
uh, have a androgynous relationship with the name and also have it be, if there was going to be an assumption about racial status or whatever in interviews and anything that wasn't face-to-face, our white skin privilege would not be an assumed item. So it was sort of like doing something purposeful in terms of the engagement with the non-face-to-face broader white supremacy culture world. But then again, it is also now we are where we are and I'm a 44-year-old white dude with with an Apache name. And so it's been really interesting. One of the interpretations of my name is death to all white men, (laughs) death to all intruders. And so it's really interesting that like, you know, I've always internalized that. I mean, from my earliest little, little kid times, like death to whiteness, you know, and power to me, right? Like that, that like I am the, Mm. the human being that I'm going to be with the actions that I build and whether or not I live a life that is worthy of remembrance or whether I've just acquiesced to the BS and been a puppet for white supremacy culture is on is like for me to decide. It is interesting. So it, it landed like it was meant to land on me, but it is also interesting that like my white self has that name. Wow. I'm glad we started there because it feels like that's that has had an impact on the direction that you've taken, you know, with with your work, with you know who you are and how you um relate to the world, right? Where are you now? What are you focused on and, and how did you get there? So now I'm, you know, I do, of course, have just the end of life, which is like paying a lot of paying my bills. And I'm actually like a forestry worker and a builder. So I'm like always also constantly doing that and 20 something years deep into that. But that like I'm passionately um, I use Howard Stevenson's wording, the racial literacy interventionist, you know, like that I have been having dynamic conversations and trying to move people within my demographic, you know, like white dudes forward toward a more liberatory future and to have, and to be like a messenger of, of like to my peoples in a way of the message that like, as much as we're sold on this and made to believe, you know, and from a very insecure place that like we need to uh, support it, our actual best, um, strongest, happiest selves are, are sabotaging white supremacy culture and and having a dynamically different relationship to it and to folks and to our future so like so I'm just sort of like whether I'm on the job site or whether I'm in the last few years I've had the opportunity to be sort of like professionally engaged with schools you know both administrators teachers and students which is just such a blessing but but that really I'm like you know even if I've been doing that work in schools probably not even 10 years you know I'm like 25 30 years into being like a three-dimensionally dynamic racial literacy interventionist Mm -hmm. that's what i'm very much engaged with day to day and it looks like a lot of different things and you know like being responsible for whiteness i feel like white people are taught that it has to go hand in hand with shame um that you have to feel diminished somehow And, and to me it's like a part of being grown it's a part of being like the same kind of person that is cares about my child and wants to have there be clean air you know is like to engage in that direction so yeah i mean that's amazing work that's some amazingly hard work i think in a state like vermont you know given the demographics um not just the white demographic but the white low income demographic where poverty and and racism kind of intersect and you know the first thing i guess i'll ask you is aside from the literature and the curriculum that you study to be in the field doing this work, how else do you um, support yourself? Like, where do you find support and, you know, and anchoring you to 
to do this kind of work in Vermont. Ooh. And I guess I can be a few different ways, like internal support kind of thing. And also like, how do you even mean, or you just mean it to be open? Open, internal, community, family, ally. Well, I can definitely start into that by saying like, you know, some of it in me doing this work and, and I, you know, I hear people say that a lot, like, and it is difficult. I mean, it is difficult work. I'm not going to pretend that it's, you know, I, I wouldn't have an easier life not engaging with it. Sure. For me, honestly, the way that I've been raised and taught, I, I have to engage to fight white supremacy culture. Like, especially since I am a white skin privileged dude in this culture, it's like, for me, that much more important. There's support in that. You know what I mean? Like to do that hard work is the work that makes me my fullest, best self. And so there's sometimes, you know, you have like a dynamic moment interpersonally with somebody that was never meant to happen because you're not even meant to be engaged in that way you know and like almost brings me to tears thinking of it it's really amazing and can be its own thing then there's like all the privilege that i got in this shit so like you know i, I got brought up by revolutionary radical anarcho-communist black and brown and white folks who are not messing around and so you know there's a part of like the poverty and racism thing has mm-hmm. never really been a hang up for me with white people like we are impoverished on the back of acquiescing to racist bullshit and policies and white supremacy culture. There, like, it's a lie and it's a easy lie to demolish. If you know your history, if you have been properly, I mean, that's the thing I, I owe so much to the people whose shoulders I've stand on. And I mean, to put that forward in all things, like I, uh, to the extent that I have anything it's from learning, <laughs> you know, it's from um, humbly being, allowed to engage with humanity so uh, i just want to yeah you know be humble about that but like i grew up broke you know i grew up in an interracial family and caring deeply about this stuff i lived in 17 different apartments and tents by the time i was 12 years old i know what it is to be broke alongside broke folks so it's like i don't have to jump into you know even though i'm, I'm comfier now than i was growing up you know that whole like, oh how you not only jump into whiteness to talk about white whiteness of white people how do you broke jump into broke white people stuff like i'm i'm already cooled there i don't there's no jumping into that and so uh, you know in terms of like how to talk with folks how to hang and how to be there's a level that it just feels right and is helpful honestly you know the safety of my whiteness and the cultural pieces of like being a working person you know i had growing up in a like a politically left-wing family and in an interracial family where we I mean, we really, when I was, but when I was little, we were one of only two interracial families in the town and we all got heat all the time racially. I always felt on the outs, you know, I always felt like, oh, our family is definitely being otherized. Like we're this, da, da, da. And then I was at like my, actually have gone to a few of my high school reunions. <laughs> I've grown, I've been in Northeast Kingdom, Vermont since I was three years old, even living all those places. Like I've just been in like broke ass Northeast Kingdom the whole time. And I'm sitting in one of these family, these um, high school reunions, like 15, 20 year reunion. I'm like, looking around and I'm like, dude, I got more years of running a chainsaw behind my arms than any of these people I went to school with. Like, who, why should I ever feel that because, you know, I live a life that's also like has black adjacency in it, that I live a life that is like informed by radical politics, that somehow I'm not allowed to have multiple identities. That's immediately was any little bit of adhering to my country Vermontness or redneckness. I actually self-identify as a redneck among other things i really glommed right onto it no redneck was going to tell me ever they're more of a redneck than me even though there are (laughs) um (laughs) you know but but those things give me room and space and whatever those kind of three major things i need to do it to be the full human i got to be and i have this ease of access of that 
I got rat out as I've been here my whole life. And so it's just on family levels and other things and being in touch with other uh, folks doing this work and everything. You know, I feel supported in those ways, being in a broader community. I want to take a moment to speak to me learning to do this work from my dad who raised me, who's a black dude and had been a Panther. So my biological dad was a part of a group called the United Freedom Front and the papers ended up calling them the Ohio Seven. And he ended up spending about 30 years in prison and dying in prison for seditious conspiracy bombings and for killing a police officer. My dad who raised me at that time was already in prison doing an 11 year sentence for Black Liberation Army related uh, activities up and down the East Coast. My stepdad who raised me who was in prison developed a relationship with my other two parents through book sharing programs and stuff and just being in a movement together. So by the time my biological dad went underground, my would-be stepdad was already a family fixture and a comrade of both of my parents. And it turned out that my mom and he developed a romantic love. And my dad who raised me got out of prison when I was like six. And he immediately came to Vermont as a, a black dude and a panther from Georgia, raising two white kids with a white woman in the middle of Vermont. And so our family dynamics of our peoples in Georgia are that we're broke. It's like almost all black family and and super impoverished over a lot of time. So like my dad coming up here from Georgia, you know, had not only the culture shock of being his black self up here, but also that like the people who were most in line with our family politically, the people who were not targeting us racially, the people who had similar anti-war and anti-nuke sentiments and stuff were people that we felt really often uncomfortable around because we're dirt broke, <laughs> you know, like, like that those circles didn't feel there was some amount of yourself that you kind of felt like you had to hold on to. I think anyone who's has been impoverished like can identify with that kind of feeling. And so interestingly, I saw my dad have this level of like needing to outreach to super broke ass humanity. So like we ate a lot of the fish that my dad caught growing up for protein. And so he met lots of Vermonty white rednecky dudes over millions of hours on riverbanks fishing and you know we'd be working on cars in the yard with the other dude whose car doesn't work and you're sharing parts and you know what I mean all of that stuff and so there was an element of like my dad who raised me just like really building dynamic three-dimensional relationships with the most problematic demographic you know like broke-ass white dudes who also came to the party with racist sexist homophobic language and understandings. And I watched my dad with um, sometimes with, you know, intensity and anger and stuff, but all the time with a level of patience and love and empathy, just dynamically change people, just be like willing to meet people where they're at. Cause that's where you're going to take your next step from. I'm right here to take that step with you, dude, you know, and, and hang out and build family. So so even though I've got this incredibly easier access to it than my dad ever had, you know, I have this whiteness, I got this cultural redneck identity that my dad also had, but they wouldn't let him have him because he, because he was black and it also came from Georgia. Right. So, so like I'm given these extra tools to make the work I do easy, but honestly, like the, the practitioner of what I do with um, my demographic with broke white dudes, like I, I learned most of the, you know, the really fundamentally deep heart, mind, intellect, all of that work, like from my dad, who came up here as a 28 year old, fresh out of 11 years of prison to raise two already created super traumatized white kids. And, and I was just like, it just really amazes me all the way around in that. But I, 
in my mind, I'm always paying tribute to him specifically for some of that work. So. Oh, that's, uh, and, and his name? His name was Arthur Saffold or Sekou Amari. He had a, he had a taken name as well. Sekou Amari. Okay. Yeah. That's really important. That's really important for me to know. I think that's really important for us to know because I can say just from, you know, my experience and this work that we're engaged in, um, where we where we're like now openly addressing white supremacy culture, right? Because of uh, you know this this opening that was created. I don't know. We'll, you know, we'll say George Floyd, right? Just mm-hmm. for the sake of everyone kind of knowing who that person is. But a whole lot of other things, you know, throughout not just the past year, but decades uh, and generations. We're now at this point where you know we have this opening. And we can have, um, you know, albeit uncomfortable conversations about what white supremacy, what white supremacy culture that isn't necessarily Ku Klux Klan or Jim Crow South. It's more like of the everyday stuff that we do, right? The folks who I have come into contact with, who I've been engaging with, do not have uh, the experience and the background that you have. And so, you know, I don't want to exceptionalize anyone, you know, I just want to keep it real and say like, yo, most of the people who are doing the work you're doing or trying to do the work that you're doing are needing therapy because of lack of background that they have, you know, in this, right? Let's talk about the broader, like the broader folk who are are, are jumping into this work and those of us who are trying to increase our understanding of white supremacist culture and the challenges facing Vermont schools in particular and students and, and the roots and ties in white supremacy culture. I heard you say, if you know your history, then it's easy to debunk a lot of this work. Like, is, is that it? Is that the extent of the work we need to do is understand our history or are there multiple parts to that? No, there's a, there's a lot of dynamic, like um, coming to terms with, with whiteness and understanding that's like the dynamics that we're sort of swimming through in that is a lot of like outside of historic context, like framing and understanding of concepts and ideas and like how it is that we walk through this stuff. We wrote on my wall as a nine-year-old kid, read history <laughs> in the house, you know? And so no, I do have to say that is like, without that deep understanding of history, there is a whole lot missing to like empower and embolden us to move forward. And also to like equip our arguments and really trying to shift and change people's attitudes and moods, you know? Because we're all here on the back of a lie. And so, you know, and sets of lies. And so like without being able to see like where and how it's a lie, I can't point right at it and see like, hey, there's something different underneath the lie. Right. And so the, the historic piece to me is really big in that. But again, this speaks to it's, it's like a mix of like the, the history and the dynamic of understanding whiteness and stuff. Right. Beverly Daniel Tatum has a great and I wish I could remember the way she uses the four words. But she's like, you know, we have basically have three models of whiteness and they're all uncool models and so like till we develop a fourth healthy white identity right like then of course you're going to get people that strike out against any of the three current options and without us understanding our history we're not going to see how to find that fourth type of white person which is historically let's say there has in every generation been white folks who are a part of the struggle toward a liberatory future and against enslavement and imprisonment. You can go to whether it's Denmark VC or the 
posiers that I say their name or that, you know, like there's just so many instances in history, you know, and maroon society history and all that. So it's like that I get to gain strength out of that. And it's important to know that history or it's easier for me to believe the lie that, oh, because whiteness comes with this extra responsibilities and whiteness is this ugly thing. And I'm forced to identify with whiteness because I have responsibility for whiteness, right? If that's the end of the story, then like, yeah, that fuels the the white supremacist proper narrative of point out how evil we are. You want to be, it's a, we eat you or you eat us kind of situation. Sorry, but not sorry. I mean, that's how they deal with that stuff. So it's like, you got to shake loose the whole base and fundamental piece of that, you know? So there's that sort of like the history piece is big, but then also to the question, no, I have to like, how am I conceiving of my whiteness? You know, like I had a, I'll speak to this. I had a really challenging journey personally going from believing myself to be non-racist and seeing that I could only strive toward being as anti-racist as possible. And that it was going to be a a second by second struggle in my life. And when I didn't figure it out, I was going to be contributing to racism and white supremacy culture. That was a hard one for me. You know, I, um, I think being the one six member household, I was the one white skin privileged male. So I know that like, you know, we kind of had a joke in the family, like hoping that the enemy wouldn't get me in my mind. Right. That like, my set of privileges wouldn't be so deep that I would run from our family tradition. And they're all super happy and proud that like I didn't, you know. So I think that like in the household, I think they took it a little easy on me as when I was young for fear of like, hey, if we really make this dude feel too other in the household by making him feel responsible and stuff, like maybe that will bury this cleft. So I made it off to college being like really on it, you know, really a great anti-racist in a lot of my behaviors and ways but I also went out there being like I'm not racist I'm non-racist like I'm a from birth this is me like no I don't you know what I mean like there's a level of white culpability and stuff and things that I just know I don't accept it you know and so it took some really like brilliant loving empathetic peers of color of mine to spend some time with me and get help help me wrap my head around that in a way that my family had not actually forced me to wrap my head around you know, I started it off by being like, I've got to prove to everyone, you know? So like in sixth, first grade, dude says something racist about my dad. And I start pounding on him, you know, prove to myself and to him and whoever, what side I stand on because I'm a non-racist, you know? Yeah. Same thing, eighth grade, same thing, whatever. The more I'm able to come to terms with like my relationship to whiteness within this stuff, actually, the more I'm able to take responsibility for it, which then means I'm able to let the rest of the possibilities within me shine even brighter, right? If that makes sense. So like by understanding that I'm an anti-racist and that I get up sometimes that I don't follow through well, which means I just contributed to racism in a way that not only did I contribute to it because everyone can contribute to it and does, but like that there was extra pain behind it because of my privilege and where I stand. I've got such a deep desire to move away from that, but it also speaking to the work that I do with like resistant white dudes, okay? As a younger little you know, sharp skinhead against racial prejudice, little brawler, little guy, I just want to punch people in their mouth. You know, I was like, I was getting nothing done. What am I doing? Like helping people double down and stuff. I just had this image the other day. This is cheesy as hell, but this is like, it's totally how I see this stuff now. White folks are the least harmed by white supremacy culture. And even we have been just a baseball to our knees over this stuff, you know? Tell me how. There's so much great literature on this stuff. There's a 45 minute video by um, John Bracey, who's a, a professor down in, in Massachusetts somewhere. And he basically said, ah, I'm trying to get you folks to care about black people all this time. Like I'm done trying to get you to care. So how about this? 
these are all the millions of ways that like racism has contributed to to harm for your life. So whether you want to talk about like our lack of health care in this country compared to other, you, know, you can do comparisons with other majority white nations. And you can see that across all across the whole board. Right. We have poorer relationship to resources and money than those other white people and white majority nations. And that's on the back of us stabbing and punching across at our peers of color rather than getting our act together and working towards shared goals and needs together. Little kids in factories getting churned up, different blood banks. You're not allowed to get black blood if you're white when you're, you know, in the World War II. There are so many avenues and levels of that. In terms of like the moving white folks and that change and from going from like feeling non-racist to understand I'm anti-racist and understanding my culpability and understanding how I want to take responsibility for that culpability and let the rest of my whole self shine is these i'm closer in my own personal identity to the people that i'm trying to move so there's less of a looking down my nose and i'm coming at you because it's right and more and more of a like oh i'm able to see all the way or not all the ways but i'm able to see more and more the ways in which i support white supremacy culture and i feed into racism without even meaning to which means i better be able to from my location be able to have some empathy for someone who hasn't figured it out yet i better feel lucky that i've figured it out enough to try to get ahead of that curve and so i had this image the other day actually of everyone running from a tsunami and there's like safe ground okay and like the safe ground just like has everybody you know all of our identities racially religiously like physically like everything like where people are making it there making it to a future where like and the tidal wave the thing is like is like hatred consumption of like whatever right and we're all trying to make it to that safe ground and back at the end of the thing the most about to get caught up in that tsunami and come get us all as like some little nazi (laughs) do you know what i mean if that makes sense like if we're all trying to get to this goal of a more liberatory future the persons farthest from that are some like hatred perpetuating on purpose kind of ideology stuff right and 20 years ago i would have pictured myself as someone going to punch that person in the face to make sure that they didn't even make it into that future with me right and now i see myself as somebody who's running back to that person to put my arm under their shoulder you know yeah yeah i know it now nah, <laughs> i know you put yourself in the middle of a lot of a lot of dangerous situations that actually and that crying is really on the back of like that's where so much of the joy and power is that i come from i mean even in that even in me being endangered and directly engaging with white supremacists i'm not as endangered as my family members who are folks of color and i get to bear witness to that every day and so i don't I don't ever mean to like, I just want to make sure that that's so some of that tearing up is that like, and the reason I say cheesy is like, I feel that to my bones, dude, I owe that to that person. I owe that to our future. I mean, like, I just can't imagine being more committed. It's like equal with like my commitment to keeping my son alive. And so it's also joyous and weird. I'm into weirdos, you know, I really am, uh, you know, especially when it comes to this work, you know, we, we got to break the mold somehow. Yeah. And, you know, I guess I'm in agreement with the history. Like I feel that. And I've, you know, I think a lot of my greatest, um, a lot of my education, you know, the most, the most of my learning, you know, came from when I was incarcerated. It, it brings me to, really worry a little bit about um, having to rely on our public school system to really put into context white supremacy culture in a way that is accessible to um, 
you know, to, to everyone, right? Um, yeah. You know, so I go back and forth, right? Sometimes I'm, in, I'm encouraged, I'm inspired. Other times I'm like, you know, I'm in the old North End, right? So, you know, I get to see um, white folks who have been here for generations and who um, have not been a part of the um, social mobility, you know, that has happened in, in this town. Um, and there's this intersection of that demographic and the, you know, so-called new American uh, immigrant folks who are just getting here, you know, who are all crammed up in these, you know, like small apartments where, you know, with like eight family members. And just that, you know, that tension on a day-to-day -day level where, you know, people just kind of basically ignore each other, you know, except for the kids, right? The kids... Right. <laughs> You know, the kids are obviously like, what's going on over there? You know, like, what's going on over there? But it just feels like a, a, a strange environment to be in where the one place they will come face to face is in the classrooms. Right. Right. Eventually, right. You know, and they might spread out at different elementary schools. There's two middle schools, so you might not see each other you know, until you get to high school because everyone feeds into the same high school. Right. And then that's where all the not magic happens, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, so what, what, what do we do? You know, and just to, just to give you some context for uh, in terms of our education system here in Vermont and, um, you know, we're talking about history, you know, in a lot of cases, unless we're watching a YouTube video, it can it is can only really be accessible through reading, right? And we essentially have a literacy and comprehension crisis here in Vermont. Fourth graders, half of fourth graders, K through 12, are not reading proficiently, right? Now we can argue about how we're measuring that. You know, we can argue about the test and how good the test is, and all of that. You know, we we can we can have that conversation, and we still need to unpack. Okay, so why are half of the kids able to figure out how to be proficient in this, but the other kids aren't being you know proficient at this? You know, um, you know we're talking about reading, English language arts, right? And you know what happens after fourth grade if you're not reading proficient. So it took me a while to, to, to get to come to that because I spent years talking about restorative practices and restorative justice because of the school to prison pipeline. Black and brown kids are being suspended at higher rates. The free and reduced lunch kids are, are suspended at higher rate. You know, the, the kids who are on IEPs and been labeled with disabilities are being suspended with higher rates. But it took me a minute to get down to the underlying problem of why some kids are acting out is because they fell behind they can't keep up. They're going to middle school behind. And who wants to be dumb, right? Like who, I mean, and, and most of the kids, and, you know, I, I can relate to wanting to be a badass uh, than a, a dumbass, right? Yep. And or, as you're saying this, I'm just like picturing a million kids that, I, you know what I mean? Like engage with and know that like, right, rather than be the end of someone's attention because they're looking down on me for this thing that I'm 
like, I don't even need that thing you say I'm lacking. Actually, here's a middle finger. Here's like everything to your everything. So what do we what do we do with that? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's interesting with me and my life and specialties. I got so much less for you on speaking dynamically about um, getting kids earlier, knowing how to read. I just think about no specialties around that. But I do know how to think about it. I mean, I know like in my household, I went to public school and then you had second school when you got home, you know, like, oh, what what'd you talk about today? How'd they frame that stuff? What it looked like? They include this. They tell you about that, you know, da, da, da. so to me, as part of me having my kid in public school, I want him to have all the good stuff, all the shortcomings, all the lies. And and then, right, it's kind of kind of like how I also listen to right wing radio and religious radio so that I'm not just thinking I know what you're talking about. I'm actually respectfully hearing your ideas so that I can think about how to engage with them kind of thing. So I know like, right, I can just immediately picture like economic resources and people's availability and time to like that, that helps denote that, you know, that set of privileges right there. It goes a long way to talk about those, you know, the first parts of those kid pieces. And then on my picture, I'm like remembering me being in school a long time ago and things have, have changed. Actually, it was a lot more stigma than I think or like more stigma available. You had to get in special lines for your food and stuff. And they didn't have breakfast except for the poor kids who came in. So I feel like there's like some of that stuff is definitely changing a little bit away and making that be less full of stigma. But um, yeah, oh, I don't know. Thinking on that. Yeah. I bring that up because I need to have that conversation. Me personally, I need to have that kind con- that's an iterative conversation that I need to have over and over again is in as many spaces as I can. Yep. Um, because it's so fundamental, you know, like I, I one thing I do have to say, you know, I came out of the New York City uh, public school system, the largest public school system in the country, having internalized that, you know, you have to know how to read, you know, no matter what you do, a riff. Reading is fun- fundamental. Yeah, I remember that. That's right. Yeah. I internalized, we internalized that. And, and that was for real. Um, you know, what we read was, you know, the, the content wasn't as, you know, my, my parents didn't do as good a job. You know, I, I, what we read and internalized were usually lies <laughs> and not, not true, unfortunately. Yet I took for granted that everybody at some point was going to learn how learn how to read and that it almost that it was like a natural thing and what i'm learning now is you know i'm 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 understanding reading now as a science and something that the brain really has to go through a lot of work in order to do and that for humans is a relatively new thing that we've learned how to do in you know in the past you know i don't know 10,000 years or so it's a very complicated thing especially when there's no one at home who's going to be asking you questions about what you you picked up. Yeah, I'm always pushing in, in, in the, like the building fearless futures piece that I'm a part of and the work that we do in that way is like really building spaces to support kids of color and and um, really pushing forward a model of, of racial literacy intervention, you know, and the way that I kind of picture that is like I, I'm remembering back to being in school and I'm thinking as I picture things now as I'm coming and going in schools, you know, that like how early is it that a kid puts themselves in the mind of the adult into the track where they're not worth it anymore. And I don't mean like in a mean way where the, where the teacher is like, Oh, you're not worth it. But like, wow, I keep trying. I keep trying. And you're letting me know that you're just fine. You're on this track. Well, fine. I've got all these other kids also stuff to deal with. You know, I really don't think I'm not trying to speak bad. Right. Of like, 
individual people doing their body. I've seen that play out a million times, you know, and actually coming from the family that I came from, like I ended up being a scholarship kid going to college, but like I was pegged by sixth grade as like trouble, get him out of the way, monitor him extra and make sure no danger comes out of him, you know? So like whether you're putting yourself there or not. And then, so for me, part of the like racial literacy interventionist model is like, maybe as it can relate to straight up reading stuff is like a kid who's told me, no, I fully resist. I don't want it. I'm actually daring to go right, like to put the arm under there and be like, really, you don't want it? What about if it's like this? What if it looks like that? Like, what's this? Da, 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 da. You know, and, and holding up kids intellectually too, no matter who, like doing, doing the work, I'm always telling a kid, you know, oh, you're so genius. I love that you're thinking that, da, 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 da. you know, I, I might not even be quite as impressed as I let out, but if I'm anything other than disappointed, dude, I'm pumped to let you know that I'm impressed, you know, like, I believe in you. I see you being smart and stuff. And so I, I just, I don't know. And it doesn't speak so directly to the reading thing, but I wonder like how early are we letting kids through that shame or weirdness of falling off? I'd rather be a badass than a dumbass. I think that's the perfect way that you, you put that. Cause it's like, it does sum that up. What about when someone's declared that they're a badass and you say like, I know, but not really, you know what I mean? You're like, I know, but like, let me in and we'll, you know, we'll get at this reading thing and we get at this, whatever thing you know talk to me a little bit about bff bff is currently um it's myself and three other people building fearless futures and you can check out the websites at www.buildingfearlessfutures.org you know there's a little uh explanation there of basically like trying to be a, a racial harm mitigation uh vehicle right like uh, for the purpose of us all being happier healthier and being able to more successfully build into a liberatory future and so really it's just like a some sort of framework and vehicle to try to house and put forward professionally what is really like four or five decades worth of racial justice and racial literacy work between myself and three other partners so i'm, I'm the one uh white skin privileged person in the mix there and the you know some of us have relationships with each other that are only a couple years old and some of us have relationships with each other that are like 30 years old so yeah so it's really and we're trying to i mean we're trying to just be open in any way to to push that envelope but we've been being engaged by schools to do actually a varied amount of work we're really interested in pushing a model that is okay so kind of seems like schools are ready to do professional development stuff right are ready to pay someone some amount of money to come up in the front of the room you know, on a professional development day and like tell you about some stuff and hopefully we get certification afterwards and that's rad. And there's models for like consultancy, like more one-on-one -on -one or doing whatever kind of thing. Um, we don't see very many models like direct support with from the school's money to create racial affinity spaces for kids of color, nor does there seem to be much of a model of uh, interrupting the backlash as it comes out of white kids right because like every and any time there's any step forward there's that that raining down of of uh keeping it out so it's sort of like if we can move into a space and like sure we're engaging with teachers we're engaging with administrators we're having those conversations and we're fitting into the the models that already exist there but from my understanding we're sort of like particularly excited about the opportunities we get to do the direct interventionist work with like you know harmful white students and and direct support work for uh, students of color, you know, to, to create spaces and, and to have that. And that we really see those being like elemental models of, of any, any move forward for, for anything. And one of your official questions that was written up there was sort of like, what is um, racial literacy or justice means to you or whatever. And I was kind of thinking like, it means being able to take, it means taking the, the step you have to take to allow any other step, 
to go down you know like people say oh race or class kind of thing it's interesting that like i fully actually see that like this is class this is capitalism it's racial capitalism the main tool and function you know of this classist society is is race right and and that they have created certain races to be castes to economic castes within this so so for me it's sort of like even with an understanding of the problem being economic and even being a white person i'm not coming from it as as being a, a person who's marginalized by my racial identity right that i still am able within that framework to be like oh dude we're not we're not making any ground on feeding kids we're not making any ground on kids reading we're not making any ground on there being less um sort of like interpersonal clash and cultural issues in the community none of that none of that none of that is going anywhere until we have got some more than zero or backwards level of understanding about our history and our relationship to our racial identities and and what it means to be treated accordingly this is uh this is a great first conversation because um you know those questions i put out there you know about racial equity and what they look like a lot of that stuff is still evolving right like as we um, move through all this uncertainty and in some point in some cases racial equity work or what some people will call you know diversity and equity inclusion work you know depending on when you rolled into that you know uh, wheelhouse have put that on the back burner right um, with uh, you know in a COVID-19 uh, pandemic setting where um, what has emerged as a top priority is the economy, right? <laughs> what has emerged as the top reason for getting kids back into school so that folks can go back to work. <laughs> you know? and I, I love that, like a direct analogy. It kind of is too, like that whole, like, so how are you going to get your economy going if you don't get on top of this disease, right? So like, how are you gonna make it actually work and move forward for anyone other than like a real privileged Uber citizen type of BS white thing if we don't get on top of this <laughs> plague that is racism, you know? And again, ties to that whole like, you know, racism harming white people. And even in that, us addressing that earlier, that was like physical, regular life stuff. What about all the ways in which I also am made to be small and feel small by me projecting that you should be small, right? What are all those psychological deficiencies that I actually have accepted when I, when I process my whiteness the way I'm supposed to in white supremacy culture instead of processing it in a way that is helpful and transformative you know, for all our futures? I shouldn't be asking you this at the end of this conversation, but I'm imagining that you've heard people talk about decolonizing. Have you? And if you have heard that, like where where do you see that play out or how do you, how do you see that playing out in your work? Oh, so interesting that you ask it with how do you see it playing out in your work? I think it's super important and necessary all the way around, right? How do we get a majority white, it's still majority white population by a little bit, but how do you get a majority white population or especially these little um, segregated white populations that we have everywhere, right? To come to terms with, right? To deal with, to actually move into that future. And, um, you know, it's wild to me that like so much of the mechanism of, of whiteness and even just framed like the way that Robin D'Angelo frames her stuff there, right? You're creating all this like mental weakness and mental and emotional weakness in space by adhering to what you're meant to adhere to. And so like, the, for me, the pro like getting people to just really actually see 
I mean, there's, oh my God, there are so many different levels. So like the white insecurity thing that like white people are a um, minority on the earth, right? And that that ends up making people feel insecure. And so how am I supposed to even accept any kind of decolonized? Decolonized stuff means I'm supposed to get used to, you know, narratives where I don't see as many white folks, maybe even make it proportional, which would means that whiteness would be a minority representation in every single representation, right? How do you get kids in a majority white space to just come to terms with that as stasis, as like, just that's just life kind of thing. So much of that is just grappling actually with whiteness and understanding that like, really on a conceptual level, when I have a child, it's my child, that kid has inherited all kinds of stuff from me. If I'm letting myself be blind to the beauty of that and how it goes forever into the future, by our relationship to the racial identity piece. And I feel some insecure way about that. It's crazy. If we had, instead of for like the purposes of enabling the enslavement of people, if we had a one drop of blood rule where like one drop of whiteness made you white instead of one drop of black blood made you black, right? Kind of craziness. You know, we don't operate like that now, but we are the people who operated on that for hundreds of years. That construct is what has us feeling insecure. Nothing biological, nothing genetic, nothing necessary or natural has us feeling messed up. And if for some reason we had some ugly history that had completely made that opposite, it would mean that the majority of the world would be considered white right now with all of our same complexions and skin. So, so to me, there's a lot of room within our minds like for imagination and for just being able to conceive of things the way they are <laughs> rather than the way that they have been falsely constructed that will actually get white kids and populations to just ease on back to decreasing the backlash is a big piece when i think about decolonizing i'm with it i want it and when i think about my role and how to help make it happen you know i'm uh, especially with my social location i shouldn't just be in the front of every room trying to tell everyone about every kind of cultural thing and stuff, I can be really maybe helpful in trying to shift that attitude in the white population that is just geared to backlash instead of to see that like, oh, this is a beautiful opening to my own dynamic growth and strength and capacity to be like one with other people in the world and to be, to shine as an individual. You know, when you're all sunk into some whiteness and all of your cultural and regional and ethnic identities beyond that have been like, smushed into whiteness you know like yeah i get it it's it's hard to see how actually there are all of these things that make us this beautiful different unique stuff that people who are now considered white and have whiteness and stuff also have all of these things that just make us great and beautiful and and wonderful and unique and we don't have to fear that like once we change around our understandings and dynamics of race that like we as humans won't have anything to offer to the human party i mean it just is so silly to me and so so that shift i'm really game for like let's shake that up and let's see what it means to feel different about that to then allow the professional wonderful sets of educators and community folks everything else like for us to do many of the other steps that is to create a anti-colonial model of decolonizing our minds out of this nadahe i love you man i love you Uh, that definitely we are well on our way (laughs) yes you know like i said this is just the beginning of you know, uh, uh, ongoing conversation that I really uh, need, you know, to to have with you, whether we share it with the rest of the world or not, <laughs> you know, this really, uh, this filled me up. I really appreciate your time, man. Dude, and I love you and thank you for reaching out. It's fabulous. Thanks again for joining us. If you have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions about anything you heard, 
please feel free to reach out. You can contact me at infinite at voicesforvtkids.org. You can also visit our website to learn more about our work at voicesforvtkids.org. Shout out to Mike Device with the Thomas Instrumentals and Athena with all the technical support.